there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? I'm Don Hall and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. In 1999, in search of a viable performance-based fundraiser for WNEP Theater, I decided that one less tapped art form we hadn't tackled was personal storytelling. I created a little storytelling competition that I called The Scald, S-K-A-L-D, because I like to name, obviously with WNEP Theater, I like to name things that were just not great names, but were fun for me. And Scald was Scandinavian or Viking for bard, storyteller, warrior poet. I kind of liked that feeling, and it was a contest. So we had 10 contestants, an entry fee, uh, a cash prize, three judges decide the the winner, and they were all true stories. Now, I can't recall who performed that first scald, but I do remember that it was at the Bailiwick Theater on Belmont Avenue, which is now Theater Wit. Michael Starcevich told a story about encountering Gary Busey. There was a bunch of stuff about garbage bags and Gary Busey. It was very funny. A lot of stories. Marty DeMott, our venerated Second City guru, was one of the judges. And because I comped so many of the people to see it, I was so excited about this thing. Despite the standing room only crowd, we actually lost money on this fundraiser which says a lot about my ability as a businessman. (laughs) It was so much fun, however, I decided we'd produce the Scald annually. We eventually held storytelling symposiums, workshops, and joined with the city of Chicago as the very first storytelling festival in the city. In 13 years that we did the Scald, I heard a lot of stories from a lot of people. Jonathan Pitt's story of his father, the chimpanzee he grew up with, and a serial killer was maybe the best story I've ever heard. Without a lot of fanfare or bragging, I'm pretty sure that the explosion of storytelling in Chicago was predicated by the skull. I'm not going to say that it happened because of it by any means, but we were among the first. And along the way, I added the Maelstrom, which was an improvised story contest. That was a blast. Uh, Three rounds, and and we'd get suggestions from the audience, and then they'd have, uh, they'd tell a, what was it? It was they'd tell a five-minute story, a three-minute story, and a one-minute story, all improvised. We had the Scald Forum, uh, the best being Patrick Brennan interviewing slam pappy Mark Smith about the power of stories. Amanda Roundtree and I would teach workshops and teach hungry tellers how to structure an orated story. We'd work with kids, we worked with adults. Well, in 2012, Tyler Green, who had just joined the ranks of WBEZ as a receptionist, asked me if I'd heard of The Moth. I sort of had, but I hadn't been to see it at Martyrs in its first year here in Chicago. Tyler was the Chicago producer and suggested that I should come to the opening of their second venue at the Haymarket Pub and Brewery and tell a story. It was their launch of that second venue they'd done so well at Martyrs. And I thought about it. It was a theme show, and the theme was firsts. Well, Scott Whitehair and I decided to go together. 
and I put my name in the hat. Brian Babylon, the host at Martyrs, was hosting at Haymarket that night for because that was the only host they had, and called my name. I told the story of my first kiss with Alice, certainly not knowing how tangled and rotten that relationship would eventually turn, and it was scored in second place. It was fun, and it brought back all the fun I had doing the scald. Well, a few days later, I got an email from the producers in New York. Would I be interested in hosting at the new venue? When Tyler told me I paid 100 bucks per show, and I bit. Sounded like fun, and at that point, I was no longer involved in theater much because I was producing experiential events for WBEZ, and that, that really just took up all of my time. So the opportunity to get up on stage and perform without rehearsals or any pressure sounded like fun, and it was fun, a ton of fun. Now, in those nascent days, there were only a couple of, just like a handful of storytelling nights going on. I mean, there were just not, not that many. White Hair built a career on it, which shows like This Much is True and Story Lab. You had Second Story. Cara Brigandi and Eric Williams at the Silver Room had grown folk stories. And there were likewise only a handful of performers present. Most tellers were neophytes or just regular people coerced to getting up and telling their personal narratives on stage. Now, as others realized that, like improv in the early 90s, it was an easy and cheap way to produce a show, more and more nights popped up, and more and more performers started crafting stories rather than just getting up and winging it. Now, at one point, I noticed that most of the tellers were white guys, much like improv and stand-up and, and theater. I also observed that most of the hosts of The Moth nationwide were comedians, and the slam was populated more by funny stories than the kind of deep introspection that I really valued. I loved a funny story, but I wanted, I wanted some more meat to that sandwich. So I started inviting women and people of color and folks from the LGQTB community to attend with the guarantee that if they came, I'd pull their name despite the fact that it was supposed to be a random draw. Yes, I cheated. Tyler didn't know about it. Ellen didn't know about it. Uh, later on, Lauren Lieber didn't know about it. But if I invited somebody to come from the south or west side to tell a story and then told them basically, yeah, maybe you get up, maybe you don't, that wasn't going to work out. So I kind of had to guarantee it if I wanted to have their presence. I also started opening the show with a, a series of word jazz to set the stage. I, I, I felt like it was a more artistic, serious opener and that that might encourage more serious stories. Ambition. The wax wings were extraordinary able to grant the boy the power of a god. And while the journey ended badly, the flight was beyond imagination. What glory to be king, what price to pay to ascend. Although his wife wouldn't clean her hands, the play was writ and he lives forever. Cameron and Costner both stretched too far, massive egos and expanding budgets, overreach being standard practice. The boat sank. The postman drowned. In the graveyard of forgotten ideas thrust the heads of a million zealots. No flowers adorn the headstones. No one mourns the failures. High above the burial ground is the pedestal of improbable success. All who stand with it will testify that without the hubris, they would be forgotten too.
past. Be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. Embedded in the human experience is the source of the why. Not knowing what will happen in the next moment is the root of why we continue forward. Companion that to that pixie dust called hope and nemesis to that dark-shirted, malevolent doubt, easily cracked and difficult to repair like a mirror that reflects our best intentions. Be cautious when someone who does not love himself says, I love you. When earned, it is loaded with expectation. When given, it is easiest to take for granted. Difficult to gift a stranger, but even harder when a friend shatters it. Necessary in every cooperative and essential for the embrace of self, especially when drunk or feverish and our true intentions become clear. Beware when, in order to sell an idea, fear is employed. Do you give it to me? Do I then return or withhold it from you? Are either of us worthy of the others, and how do we know? Only one way to find out. Take the shirt. Tell him you love him too. See the idea beyond the fear. Just jump off the cliff already. If you're wrong, only your heart breaks from the fall. Taboos. Lenny Bruce was convicted in 1964 for saying cocksucker. In America, he was dragged off stage for saying the N-word, which the fact that I can't say it now would have Bruce kicking and screaming in his grave. Lucy could be pregnant but not share a bed. Kirk could kiss Uhura but only under alien mind control. Maud could get an abortion, but only because she was a grandma. Torches universally reviled, but we watched Jack Bauer do it weekly. Roman Polanski slept with a teenage girl and fled. Michael Vick abused dogs and kept his Heisman. Dogs are less important than teenage girls, except when it comes to reproductive rights. Blowjobs in Georgia. Incest in Montana. Cannibalism? Bad everywhere but not as bad as necrophilia. Dip a sacred cow in a jar of urine or cover one in feces and burn it. Take a photo of a bullwhip inserted or walk naked in the street. These are the places few tread lightly. These are the acts only the bold or stupid engage. The business of shattering the sacrosanct, the skewering of the golden calves. You can actually purchase a book of these on Amazon. It's entitled Like a Burning Moth Without a Clue as to How He Caught on Fire, a collection of word jazz. Uh, yeah, please, buy it. You can get a Kindle or you can get a, uh, a paperback. So I'd love it if you did that, but that's just a couple of examples. Well, the word jazz worked. Um, while both Tyler and the New York producers kind of hated it, Starting a story slam with a poem seemed out of place, but they also didn't care for my giving poetry slam creator Mark Smith credit in the intro. Uh, soon, the slam at Haymarket had the most diverse lineup, and the stories were a grand mixture of funny, serious, and life-affirming. 
Success, however, breeds a certain resentment. The storytelling scene started to become a platform for pockets of cults of personality. Certain tellers looking to become known for the act. People wanting to get famous. Stars in the making in their own minds. Unfortunately, the bizarre nature of the competition, the nature of being seen as a winner based on the most subjective and ever-changing criteria of three teams of judges whose only qualifications that, that they'd seen the show before, had begun to genuinely overtake the spirit of egalitarianism baked into the model. Sometime around the closing end of my first year as host, I came to the other moth at Martyrs, and there weren't enough tellers. So I signed up to round out the roster, and I won the slam that night. Now at this point, an odd rule was explained to me. Despite the fact that I was a host, by winning at the other show, I was invited to compete in the next Grand Slam, which was a show in front of a much larger audience with time to prepare the stories, and obviously the big title of Grand Slam winner, again, kind of meaningless, but that was thing and it didn't seem quite fair as a host that I would be in competition but I decided what the hell I'll I'll go ahead and compete this happened a couple of times and by the time I competed in three grand slams I kind of decided it wasn't really fair or in keeping with the spirit of the event so I stopped competing altogether as time wound on the competition became real for some folks Tellers like Lydia Lucio used Moth Slam winner and Moth Grand Slam winner as badges of legitimacy and celebrity to support both their own non-Moth storytelling shows and for invites to perform all around town. Soon, as the currency of winning became more tangible, more seasoned storytellers kept showing up and putting their names in the bag, slowly edging out the regular people telling for the first time. It was inevitable that my place as quasi-curator of the most visible and popular storytelling night would invite attacks. And in 2016, I was embroiled in an ugly trolling by Lydia. And given the choice to take an extended break from the show, the New York producers didn't want the bad publicity of the row, I realized it had ceased to be the thing I loved. So I walked away from the moth, and almost completely from the storytelling scene. In the nearly five years I hosted the Moth, 58 regular slams, 8 grand slams, and nearly 700 stories in that time, I really had a ball. It wasn't always fun working with Tyler and listening, or it was, let me back that up, we're going to do an edit here. In the nearly five years I hosted the Moth, 58 regular slams, 8 grand slams, and nearly 700 stories in that time that I listened to and told, I had a real ball. It was always fun working with Tyler and then sitting and listening to all those stories. Now, there are a few standout moments that include a cat who decided to Andy Kaufman the show by telling a completely outrageous story in a broken accent and refusing to stop talking after time had been called. I got him off the stage but caught him later after the show laughing with his friend Sans Accent. The night Steve Nelson came up and told a story about his father. Steve was an underwriter at the station and much later was stricken with cancer and passed away. His wife showed the video of his moth performance at his memorial. His story and his delivery of it was the perfect way to remember Steve. My first grand slam at the Park West. The big question on everyone's mind was whether or not the show needed a celebrity. Before that, both Peter Sagal and of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Brian Babylon had hosted them prior. And they wondered if having a non-celebrity was going to be able to work, that we would actually draw an audience. 
Well, I was no celebrity, and it was, according to a participant of several of them, the best Chicago Grand Slam in his recollection. The place was packed. Now, getting to be a participant in one of the Grand Slams and getting to tell a crowd of 800 people about getting engaged on the third date and the ring my mother had held onto for 35 years was destined to rest on my new fiancé's finger. Later, some random construction worker running up to me while I was parked and yelling, is that the ring? The one with the Latin inscribed? Because he'd been there that night and was moved by the story. Spending the last half of the doors open period convincing people to sign up and tell a story, seeing them get up on stage and shine as they realized how powerful a drug speaking to a rapt audience can be, and the hundreds and hundreds of stories. Stories that made me laugh so hard Tyler would glare at me on stage. Stories so moving it was hard to provide a solid segue into the next storyteller. Lots and lots of amazing stories. Two years prior, however, I was still in the throes of the joy of storytelling on stage. I, I, I kind of lost my... I, I, the, it, it's one of those things where, uh, like theater, when as the community changes, there are places for certain people. And it's, the, the, you know, the communities, art communities in Chicago are, are big enough for everybody. But there's sort of a heartbeat. There's a center for each one of those communities. And you are either part of that center or you are shoved out. That's just kind of how it works. Um, I realized two years later that I was not a part of the theater community anymore. That was not something I wanted to participate. And, 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 and I realized most recently that I'm not really a part of the storytelling community either. I was no longer necessary, whatever it happens to be. But at the time, um, for my, my 48th birthday, um, I was still in the throes of it. And the more stories I heard, the more I understood humanity. I told the audience every month that while they were all individual snowflakes, stories reminded us that we were all made of fucking snow. And to this day, I believe that. So approaching my 48th birthday, I started looking for quotes and phrases about stories. I wanted something to remind me of how essential the act of getting up and sharing and listening to one another was. The profound effect of that experience had seeped into my marrow, and along with Wallace's admonition on my right wrist, I needed something permanent to signal the joy of the work I was doing and had done. Some contenders for the spot on my left bicep, just under the Dada ink, included bad choices make great stories, sometimes reality is too complex, stories give it a form, story is a yearning meeting an obstacle, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And the second place, the almost, you know, the, the, the almost on my arm, uh, Joan Didion, we tell our stories in order to live. Well, in all of that, I kept coming back to a quote that I felt was exactly right. And so I went with it. I mean, it was perfect. Only after I decided that I would etch, we are all just stories in the end on my flesh that I discovered that it was a quote from a Doctor Who show, which was a show I'd never really watched. Now, I haven't even watched an entire episode once in my life, but it didn't matter where it came from. It was and is true. We are all just stories in the end. And that's tattoo number seven, inked on my 48th birthday. Little did I know that a mere four months later, I'd meet someone who would change everything. 
next week. Join me as I look at the end of what I used to call WNEP version 1 and the beginnings of WNEP 2.0. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in seven days. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Peculiar Journeys.